Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Guilt is uh, one of the most powerful forces in all the world. So psychologists tell us it paralyzes people, it leads people to all kinds of self-destructive behavior or even leads them to destroying others, attacking others, some sort of psychological defense mechanism uh, that apparently is employed to protect yourself from any greater sense of pain when you're suffering under guilt. It's been the focus of psychology really from its very inception. Freud talked a lot about guilt. He suggested that it was some sort of internalization of, of social or cultural rules, often embedded, he says, by your parents or some other authoritarian figure in your life. And there might be some, I guess, misguided expectations your parents laid upon you that might be some sensation of guilt that you grapple with one way or another. But the scripture tells us where the real source of guilt is, where it really comes from, and it isn't from some social expectation or that's not the thrust of it. It isn't some, some authoritarian figure on this earth. The Bible's clear that guilt, as you struggle with guilt, is primarily sourced in your conscience before holy God. It's the guilt uh, that you sense because of your violation of His holy character, His righteous decrees. And unless you have seared your conscience beyond all feeling by constantly denying and suppressing His truth, unless you're in that boat, you, like many others, if like most others, I should say, if not like most others, you grapple with guilt, with some sense of pain in your conscience on a fairly regular basis. For some people, it boils over to a sense of insecurity. They begin to doubt and worry and wonder if God really, really cares for them or if He has abandoned them altogether. It leads them into a pit of despair, as some older writers have put it. They wonder whether God is punishing them or whether their circumstances or their difficulties are some sort of sign that God has abandoned them or He's uh, written them off, He's angry with them forever. Those two sensations are at their highest either when we are in sin or when we're in suffering. Now those two themes, when we're most prone to feel God's or to feel abandoned by God. Those two themes, that sensation of, if you might say, condemnation because of sin and because of suffering, are the two themes of Romans chapter 8. This is a book that's really written uh, to address those two things. We find ourselves really at the beginning of a chapter specifically Dealing with, you might say, this sense of insecurity that is brought on by those two realities. It's in Romans chapter 8 that's considered by most theologians, most New Testament scholars to be the pinnacle of Pauline theology and in very much so the apex of this book particularly in Romans and this theme is really fundamental to the entire chapter. It's obvious really. This theme of assurance, this theme of of confidence, of certainty, of security in, in Christ, 
The confidence that we have before God that even during times when we may falter in sin or even during times when we are suffering, God has not and God will not ever abandon us. As one commentator says, the whole chapter sweeps from verse 1 and no condemnation to verse 39 and no separation. That's the famous opening Verse, Paul declares there in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the famous closing, Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. That's Romans chapter 8. And all in between, Paul's purpose is to provide you with the foundation of confidence in those two truths. The basis of confidence that no matter how badly you fail, no matter how dark are your circumstances, no matter how much you contemplate your sin or your suffering... There's no possible way for you to ever fall again under the condemnation of God and no possible way for you to ever experience rejection or separation from Him. No matter what the pains of your conscience may tell you. Now the Bible's full of reassurances of this in a number of places. We're told, for example, in Philippians 1.6, that God who began a good work in us will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus says in John 6, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but will raise it up, that is, raise us up on the last day. He says further on that no one will be able to snatch us out of His hand after He has laid it upon us. I'm told in Colossians 3.1 that our life now, if we are in Christ, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And God, Jude tells us, is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of His glory and great joy. We have all those wonderful promises, all those wonderful blessings to read throughout all the New Testament, but But above them all comes this chapter with its resounding uh, negatives about how nothing will bring us into condemnation. Nothing will bring us to separation. All the riches and abundance of certainty are centered right here. So that we're told in verse 28 that God is working all of these things together for our good. That we're free from any kind of anxiety. That somehow, somewhere, down the road, having once been forgiven, that someone will still yet bring a charge against our account. That's what he says down in verse 33, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. God has already given us His Son. He will most certainly give us 
as Paul goes on to say, all things. So nothing can condemn you, nothing can separate you. That's his message. Now you have to understand, if you're really going to grasp what's in this chapter, if you're really going to plumb the depths of it, you have to understand that this all began all the way back in chapter 5. This is the pinnacle. But there was, if you will, a, a base, a final ascent up the peak of this mountain. And it, it began in chapter 5. And if we're going to understand what Paul says here about our confidence in Christ, we need to understand what he says about our condemnation there. And it's important for us to, if you will, retrace that road between there and here. You remember in Romans 5, Paul told us in verse 8 that even while we were still sinners, God demonstrated His love to us in that Christ died for us. Long before we ever did anything worthy of it, anything to deserve it, even while we were sinners, He died for us, supremely demonstrating His eagerness, if you will, in spite of our sin, to be reconciled together with us. He goes on in verse 10, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now, that now that we are reconciled, we will be saved by His life. In other words, if God already treated you with love when you were his enemy, how much more will he love you now that he has reconciled you to himself, now that he has adopted you into his family, now that he has claimed you as one of his sons or daughters? Well, the Savior who's victorious, who's risen from the grave, what basis will he ever have now for rejecting you? These are the glorious truths that Paul began to lay out back in chapter 5. He began that chapter, you remember, with a ringing note of triumph. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That was his summary conclusion based on the doctrine of justification that he had so so magnificently laid out in chapters 3 and 4. We're, we're not justified, we're not made right based on anything from the law of God or any kind of activity or any kind of achievement or any kind of performance. In every way, the law of God or any other law fails to make people righteous before God. In fact, it only condemns. The kind of righteousness that you need then will never come by any of that performance. It'll only come by faith. That's Paul's message in the first four chapters. The kind of righteousness that comes only by faith. But Paul doesn't leave it there because just as soon as he begins to celebrate that kind of justification at the beginning of chapter 5, he, he sort of plunges us back, if you will, into our plight before God because he He takes us deeper to realize that our problem isn't simply that we couldn't keep the law of God. Our failure isn't only a failure to properly keep the law. Our failure is more fundamental to who we are as human beings. And he deals with the the basic failure from the very beginning, the failure of Adam or the fall of Adam, the fall of humanity into sin. That was chapter 5. Paul drills down deep 
Beyond that fundamental failure to keep the law to the fundamental problem of our fallen human nature. And he deals with this fundamental problem, this fundamental fall and its its outcome, which is death. He tells us in Romans 5 that by one man, sin entered into the world, that is Adam, and death spread to all men because of it. Death in that chapter isn't just physical death. More importantly, it is spiritual death. When Adam sinned, he didn't immediately experience physical death, but he did immediately experience spiritual death. And we're told that he passed that curse on to all of us. Not that every one of us die immediately upon conception, but we all are born dead spiritually. And we face death death physically. Just as Adam went from a state of spiritual life to a state of spiritual death, because the impact of his condemnation was immediate, every one of us is born under that same condemnation. We share in Adam's condemnation. And so we share in his death. We're born into the spiritual death. And thus we're born under the condemnation of Adam's sin. And so Paul concludes that chapter. By saying at the very end there. That sin therefore reigns through death. That's its throne. That, that is its authority. That is how sin propagates all of its destruction. It wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be capable of doing that if it didn't have a dead spirit to work with. So it reigns because you and I are born with the incapacity to do anything about it. We're born spiritually dead. And so we're born, if you will, as a throne for which sin can reign from. Paul expands that in chapter 6, explaining that those who are in Christ have been brought from death to life by the power of Christ's own resurrection. And so, as he goes on to say there in Romans 6, we're to no longer let sin reign in our mortal bodies. For the unbeliever... That's all he can do. That's all he can do because he's captive. Sin holds him captive and holds sway over him because of this spiritual deadness. He may try for all he wants to thwart it with moral rules and reformations and commitments and all those things. He can do nothing about it. In fact, Paul continues this language in chapter 7 explaining that this is why even the law of God is unable to help us. Because the law, he says, is actually the instrument of our death. It can't rescue you from death because it is the law which brings about death. Paul says there, the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me again not talking about physical death he's talking about spiritual death so you're not very well going to escape this problem this spiritual death by any kind of outward moral reform 
The law is unable to help mankind out of his original state of Adam because the purpose of the law was actually to highlight your condemnation and to expand it. That's what Paul says. The law was given so that sin could become all the more sinful. And so this has been Paul's, if you will, digression. He briefly celebrates the triumph of grace over the law, but then he immediately plunges us back into the deeper issue. The deeper issue, which is is not simply that you can't be religious enough, but the deeper issue, which is at your very heart, you are depraved. At your very heart, you're spiritually dead. But now he comes back. And now he returns to this theme of triumph. Which is by this time not only triumph over the law. But it's triumph of grace and justification. Even over spiritual death. And it's in light of all these truths that we find here in verse 1. This word therefore. Therefore. Or I should say there is therefore now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That that is pointing back, not just to the previous verse, but to the entirety of those previous three chapters. There might have been condemnation before, but now, he says, now, if you are in Christ Jesus, now things are, are, are different You have a new status if you're in Christ. You're no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. And it's all uh, all about this new status in Christ that launches Paul into everything he has to say in chapter 8. It is your union together with Him that is your basis of security. And I want to show you this morning, if if we can, just, just looking... At Paul's opening statement or the opening couple of verses of this chapter. And I want to really focus in on how he defines our new status in Christ. And how God has brought about from our place of condemnation. He's brought us to the place of confidence. He's brought it about, God has, first of all, by canceling. Your condemnation. That's what verse 1 is all about. He cancels our condemnation. There is no more. Condemnation throughout the past several chapters has really been the antithesis of justification. It's always set over against it. This was, as we saw in Romans 5, judgment following one trespass brought condemnation to all. But the free gift following Many trespasses brought justification. Or or in chapter 5 verse 18. Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. And so you can immediately recognize that Paul is writing all this against the backdrop of what he's been telling us about justification. We recognize this issue most clearly, this condemnation and death for all men and justification for, uh, excuse me, justification and life for all men that's been brought through Christ. Our, our situation under Adam was, 
was this. It was rejection. It was condemnation. It was judgment. But now, under the new circumstances, under the new union that you have, the union you have with Christ, those, as Paul says here, who are in Christ. That's describing this union. We, as we saw back in chapter 5, we become related to Him like we were related to Adam. In Adam, our relationship obviously was by natural birth, but in Christ, it is by faith. Paul actually used the analogy of marriage, if you remember, at the beginning of chapter 7 to describe this new union that we have with Christ, perhaps picking up that theme because in this earthly life, that is the closest kind of union and communion that we can experience with another human being. And so it was appropriate uh, to use it at that point. But really even that fails as an analogy at some point because there are people who can even dissolve that union by way of divorce, right? But what really is our union with Christ is indissoluble. It is an indissoluble connection Just as much as your connection with Adam is indissoluble. You cannot anymore undo your connection with Adam unless you, of course, can become unborn physically. You can no less undo that than you can undo your connection with Christ. Once you have entered into union with Christ, you are now in Him completely. As you were in Adam. That was the whole message of Romans 5. And this is your new state. As much as you are alive through Adam, you are now alive in Christ and secured through Him. And so the issue is not that there's nothing worthy of condemnation in you. There's still plenty of that. But there's no longer any state. There's no longer any grounds of condemnation. You see, the condemnation, your spiritual death, the grounds of all that was in Adam. And now that you're in Christ, there is no grounds for that. And so there's no more condemnation. There's no more, as we said, separation. There's nothing else that can be done to you. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God and now intercedes for us. And so what will separate us? Nothing. Our new status in Christ was also brought about when God tells us in verse 2, He liberated you with life. That's sort of the second component, if you will, of this new status that we have. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, what is all this about? What is the law of the Spirit of of life. And what is the law of sin and death? I mean, obviously, he's not talking here about the Mosaic law. He wouldn't be saying that the Mosaic law set you free from the Mosaic law. And, and more than that, he even explicitly refers to the law of Moses in verse 3 and says in no uncertain terms that it was unable to set you free. It was unable to do this. It's the whole reason that God had to do it. 
So he's not saying some, some uh, version of the law of Moses re-envisioned or anything under Christ has now set you free from some old version of the Mosaic law. He's not talking about any of that. He's using law in, in the same sense that he used it already a couple of times in the book of Romans, in the sense of a principle or a ruling authority or a power. You remember he says this back in Romans 3.27, he uses the word back there when he says, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works, but no, by the law of faith. He's not referring there to any, any defined Mosaic code. He's just talking about the principle, the principle of works, the principle of faith. And so here, Paul's using it in the same way, and he's telling us this principle of the spirit of life. The principle of the spirit of life. This new power, this new authority of life. Which, by the way, is the very thing that Paul goes on to describe and celebrate throughout the remainder of this chapter. You can go down to verse 10 and he talks about it. He says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is all that principle of life, that principle of the spirit of life. And all of this is the language that Paul used back in Romans 6 even, when he says, we were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or the next verse, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And so there is, as Paul's been telling us over and over and over again, this brand new work, this new principle of life, this newness of life that has come to us because of our union with Christ, a law of the spirit of life that's come into our hearts. And and because we've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, you have this, bringing life where there was only deadness. And bringing about then power to overcome death. To overcome spiritual death. As Paul says here in Romans 8, this sets you free from the law of sin and death. The principle, the governing authority of sin and death over your life. Again, this isn't just physical death, this is spiritual death. You're set free from spiritual death. And because you've been set free from your captivity to it, you're set free from your captivity to sin, from the authority and the power of sin. That's why Paul says over and over again in Romans 6 that you're no longer a slave to it. You're no longer a slave to it. Now this freedom... This newfound freedom of life, it's not yet complete. Because this life which has been brought to us in in our spirit has not yet been brought to us fully in our bodies. And so down in verse 23, 
what Paul calls the first fruits of the Spirit living inside of us are only the initial evidences of what will take place on the outside. That is the redemption of our bodies, the full and complete work of life, resurrected life, bodily life for all eternity. But as it stands right now, we've, we've been released from the condemnation of death. We've been released from the condemnation of Adam. The curse of spiritual deadness has been lifted. The authority and the power of sin to reign from that throne in our hearts is gone. And Paul says we've been liberated. Like a dead corpse liberated from its grave, we are no longer held captive, no longer captive to the death sentence of sin. We walked around in deadness and we were led around by chains, if you will, to sin, holding that chain and leading us wherever it will. In that condition, we were subject to sin, we were unable to bucket, we were captive to its will. If you remember, this is all the language of Romans chapter 6, picking up what Paul had talked about as our spiritual death in chapter 5. Repeatedly saying that we were slaves of sin with no real concern for righteousness before God. He ended that chapter, remember in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That's where we were. And that's, by the way, again, how he describes the unbeliever down in verse 6. He says, to set the mind on the flesh is what? It's death. It's death. We were spiritually dead and we were plunging ourselves into further death, pursuing things that ended in death. And this is key, he says in Romans 8, 7, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. That was your state. That's why, by the way, you were under condemnation. You were under condemnation because you were a God-hater. You had no interest in His law. You had no interest in doing what His will was. You were hostile in mind to Him, hostile in, in intent against His law, refusing to submit. Which is exactly why, if you were ever taken to heaven in that state, you would be miserable. You would be miserable. As you probably are miserable in your guilt now. Miserable because you've been in a place that is supremely ruled by God. Where he makes all the dictates and all the guidelines. Law is flowing down like rivers from the mountains. It's covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's all over the place. You would be miserable in his kingdom. Because your heart is bent against his law. You're always looking for an escape. This is a place of spiritual deadness. This is a place of broken fellowship with God. But the work of the Spirit in our hearts, Paul says, has brought a new mindset. It's brought new life. 
And all of this is the evidence that Paul points to that we're no longer under condemnation. You're no longer under condemnation because this, this is a new reality of your life. A new principle of life came. We shook off the shackles of spiritual deadness, broke free from the slavery of sin, and now we're free to serve a new master in Jesus Christ. Now that takes us further and helps us understand our new status in Christ, not only by that canceling of our condemnation and the liberating by this new principle of life, but thirdly, all of this came about when God did what was demanded by His law. When God did what was demanded by His law. That's what we're told in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. This is ultimately why you have this life. This is ultimately why you don't have condemnation. None of this... As we said, could have ever come about from the law. The law couldn't give you life because the law actually brought you death. And so the law couldn't do this. Not that it's intrinsically bad. As Paul says over and over again in Romans 7, it's holy and righteous and good. It's not due to any imperfection in the law. It's not that the law is somehow weak in that sense. But as Paul says here, it's weakened by the flesh. Sin took opportunity by the commandment and brought more death into our life. Greater condemnation. We were already condemned in Adam. This has brought more reason to condemn us. This fundamental inability then of the law to do anything about our situation was answered by God. God did what the, what the law could not do. And he did it, Paul, Paul describes what he did here, if you will, in five developments of, of this work of redemption. God has done what the law could not do, first of all, by sending His own Son. That's the language that's used in Scripture over and over again to, to emphasize the, the initiating love of God. How He sent His Son of His own volition. That word always used to describe the one who was dearly loved by Him in every way. That is why Paul will come back, by the way, in verse 31 and say, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not freely give us all things. So he sent his son. Not only that, he says, secondly, he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Sort of a roundabout way of Paul saying that God sent him. But New Testament writers are particularly careful in these soteriological passages, these passages describing the uh, the the intricacies of our salvation, they're particularly careful about the way they describe Christ. He doesn't say He simply came in the flesh as if He appeared exactly the same way that we are in all of our humanity with His fallen nature. That would have been the conclusion of some heretical groups later on who in some form or another embraced Gnosticism which looked at the body of Christ as corrupted in every way 
and therefore a need for Christ to be permanently separated from it. And so they, they fell into eventually even denying the resurrection and bifurcating the nature of Christ. Saying that he had, instead of one combined God-man nature, he had two separate natures. Or he, he didn't want to fall into docetism, which suggested in a similar fashion that Christ only appeared to be human, that it was some sort of illusion that he put on, that he was really some sort of incorporeal, pure spirit, and so therefore couldn't physically die because he couldn't be so tainted with such a corrupt body. That's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what Paul teaches. He doesn't say God sent his son simply in the flesh or even in sinful flesh, but he sent him what? In the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, in a nature that matches our fallen and, and, and dying bodies, and yet itself is still untainted by sin. Paul's using this apparently to sound a note of both uh, cohesion and distinction. He came in our likeness, but not exactly the same. As the writer of Hebrews says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So in other words, because you and I are in these fleshly and decaying bodies who are subject to death, he himself took on a fleshly and decaying body that was subject to death and yet wasn't corrupted in the same way by sin. He had to share in our nature in a form that was not only decaying because of the fall, but in a form that because of this decay was subject to temptation. It was subject to temptation and yet never tainted by sin. Never fallen into sin. He was like us in every way, but he was never touched by sin. This is what made him a perfect sacrifice. One who was able to stand in our stead because he had no sins of his own to pay for. And yet he had every identity with us as human beings. And so, thirdly, Paul says that God sent him, his only son, in in the likeness of our fallen human nature. And Paul says, for sin, which is kind of technical language for a sacrificial offering. The scripture teaches that in the Old Testament there was this this sacrificial system where there were constantly offerings of lambs and bulls and goats slaughtered in the temple of Israel over and over and over again. But every one of them prefigured Christ in some way. They pointed to Christ. They were all, as the writer of Hebrews says, shadows of what was to come. And in the Old Testament, as, as those offerings are presented... They're all given with this same phrase that Paul uses here, peri hamartia, for sin. 
They were all offerings for sin. In fact, in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 13, the same words here are translated as sin offering or sacrifice for sin. And some people suggest that that's the way it ought to be translated here. In fact, if you have a New American Standard, that is the way it's translated. That's the way they paraphrase it anyway. This is, this is why Christ came. He came as a sin offering. That was his purpose. It wasn't his own, it wasn't his own comfort. It wasn't the accumulation of worldly goods. It wasn't for glory on this earth. In fact, he was humiliated time and time again. He didn't come for any of that stuff, though. He came to offer himself. And because of that, fourthly, Paul says, because of that, he condemned sin in the flesh. The judgment against humanity, which came to us in Adam, had to be paid for by humanity. The judgment, the condemnation, as we said numerous times, was death. And if sin's going to be condemned, it's going to be judged... It's going to be dealt with, it had to be dealt with in the flesh. Or another way to say this, it couldn't be paid for by animals. It couldn't be paid for by angels. It couldn't be paid for by anything else than that which was condemned, which is humanity. And so he came in order to condemn sin in the very form in which it was judged. And so Jesus partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death as we saw earlier. He was made like his brothers to become a faithful high priest, Hebrews says. A priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or later in Hebrews 10, by God's will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for for all time a single sacrifice for, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for the time when his enemies would be made his footstool. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He condemned sin in the flesh. He did what the blood of bulls and goats and repeated offerings could never do. He paid in full for all the condemnation that came against all of those who believe in Him. Jesus condemned sin. He offered His body. He took the punishment. He dealt with it in the flesh. Also, as Paul says finally in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He doesn't say righteous requirements. He didn't do all this to fulfill a number of different things. He did all this to fulfill one thing. What the law demanded. The single requirement of the law, which was what? It was death. It demanded death. It called for death. The more you violated it, it called for death. It was the condemnation that you were under. It was the condemnation 
that would be your eternal destiny. That was the demand of the law. There was a demand of law for each one of you, and it had to be paid. It will be paid. The question for you this morning is, will it be paid by you or by Christ? Will it be paid by you as a descendant of Adam and still under the curse of Adam, still in your heart rebelling against God, still showing animosity against His will? Will it be paid by you in all eternity? Or will it be paid by Christ? The Scripture says He's been given as a gift. God freely gave His Son so that you who believe in Him might stand before God with no more condemnation, with no more fear of judgment, no more animosity. But you can stand before God with peace. You can stand before God with a relationship. Adopted as His sons and for all eternity. Bound together with Christ in Him. Our challenge to you today is that you would think deeply about where you stand with Christ. For God has given so much And you have heard so much. For you then to turn and reject that would only add to your judgment. We don't have an altar call here, but there's an invitation. That when we close in a moment with a word of prayer and a song, that you wouldn't leave here. Well, you wouldn't leave here having heard this message one more time and not respond. Our encouragement to you is that you would repent. That you would pray to receive Christ that you would yield your life to him and as you do that the scripture promises he fills you with life he fills you not only with life in your heart but he gives you eternal life would you stand with me we'll bow in a word of prayer father we're so grateful for the sweet communion that comes to us by this new life. Indeed, we knew what this spiral of death was all about. We were trapped in it, going from one deed of death to the next and feeling the guilt and the shame all the way. Lord, how grateful we are that you rescue us by the power of your Spirit and by the working through your Word. We pray, Father, that you would do so even today for the hearts and minds of those who may not know you. And for those, Lord, who are even still in Christ but tossed from time to time by condemnation, may you settle their hearts again with these glorious truths. A truth that nothing will separate us and nothing will condemn us. That all that Christ has done, where the law might have failed, all that Christ has done will never fail. For He is our sufficient, our powerful, our glorious Savior, in whose great name we pray. Amen.